the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The views and opinions expressed in the program are not necessarily those of this radio station or its sponsors and should not be construed as legal, tax, or investment advice. You should always consult the appropriate advisor before making any financial decision. All rights reserved. Now, AM 1220 KNOW presents... New Focus on Wealth with certified financial planner Chad Burton, drawing from his 20-year background in finance and investing to help you make sense of your money matters. New Focus on Wealth. Get a new focus on personal finance, wealth management, Wall Street, and the economy. Now your host for New Focus on Wealth, Chad Burton. Welcome into the show. I am your host, Chad Burton, certified financial planner. If you have a money question for the show, Shoot me an email. It's chad at chadburton.com. It's an easy way to go. I've got a couple of questions later in the show on safe money, where to keep it, how to build it up, and then uh, IRA to Roth conversions once you're in retirement. Let's do, since it's been uh, two weeks or so since I've been able to jump on and do a live show, um, let's do a little market update for December 7th here. We had uh, basically over the last two weeks a 3.4% pullback. And then on Monday the 6th, we had a rebound. Today, it looks like the market's going to open up about 1, 1.5% or so on a little bit of a rebound. So we're still in that phase of so much cash being out there that anytime we get any sort of a pullback close to 5%, you get cash piling into the market. And... uh a little bit of an update for you in terms of different indexes. If we look at the S&P 500, which is, again, remember, it's a market cap weighted index. So you've got like 6% of it in Apple and 6 or so in Microsoft and Google and, and some of those bigger names. So it's really about 25 companies that are controlling the overall price movement. S&P 500 up 22.66 year to date. If we look at... Uh, some of the other areas like the Russell 2000, which is going to get your small and mid-cap exposure. That was a bit of a bigger pullback there. Russell 2000 is still up for the year though, 11.7%. Real estate ETF, we look at the iShares US real estate ETF, up 28.5% for the year. And then we move on to international. And that was, again, um, a little harder pullback this last two weeks. But international developed, if we look at this is like the iShares MSCI EFA, ETF, EFA, up 6.61%, but emerging markets down 4.55% for the year. And again, after starting off the year with a bit of a bang and then fizzling out, we have China issues going towards that, uh, hey, let's, let's, let's shut down this exuberance into speculation and real estate and debt. And let's lean more communists for this next decade, it looks like. And so you're, you're starting to see actively managed emerging market funds outperform the indexes because the indexes have a higher exposure to China, plain and simple. So down 4.55% for the year where international developed up 6.61%. If we look at bonds, 
We look at the iShares Core US Aggregate Bond ETF, which is AGG. We're sitting on a loss of about 3% for the year. That's where bonds are. And bonds have been really interesting to see the rate on the 10-year treasury you know, it's get close to 1.6, 1. 1.65% 1. and then keep dropping as people you know, look at a jobs report. For example, uh, the US Labor Department reported November non-farm payrolls rose by 210,000, which was below the 550,000 jobs that were supposed to be created. Um, and so that was that was a disappointment. And you saw people pile back into the treasury that the 10-year treasury bond went up in value, but the rates dropped again. So you're seeing this kind of back and forth. Let's go back to the different indexes again, because when, you've, when you get a year like another large cap US growth year of outperformance, the S&P 500 is up 22.66%, where you got the international developed up 6.6% for the year. Uh, you know, I, I know it sounds like a little bit of a broken record on this, but don't give up on international. If you look at the EFA, I'm looking at Y charts, five year earnings growth estimate of 13.15%, a P of 14.27. But if we look at the SP 500, yeah, the five year earnings growth estimate of 14.28% is a bit higher, but the PEO is also 21. Now, Emerging markets, five years of earning estimates growth of 15%, a P of 11.83. Not quite half of the P of the S&P 500. But if, if you can look at the idea that, you know, yeah, it's not like you want to pile a bunch of money into China. But you realize the valuations are there for the long run. You know, don't go index there then. Go actively manage in terms of emerging markets exposure because there is some value there. For sure. All right. So if you look at a, t- a chart, I'm getting back to bonds now, if you look at a chart of the rate on the 10-year treasury, I mean, just a, I mean, a week and a half ago, it was like just above 1.65%. Now we're back down to 1.35%. Those are large moves in terms of bonds. That's what's kind of interesting. It's it's a lot of money movement there. Now, expect the interest rate to you know, increase over the next year, but not back to pre-Great Recessionary levels of over 4%. What I mean by that, if we look at the 10-year rate back prior to 2007, before the Great Recession, it was over 4%. But since then, we've had a massive amount of stimulation by the government in terms of, hey, we're going to push a bunch of money into the economy, we're going to fund these. Uh, we're we're going to, you know, essentially borrow and build our way out of some of these recessionary issues. So too much debt has been issued. So even though rates will go up to fight inflation over the next year or two, it's probably not going to get too high because the idea that you know the the government can't afford you know a much higher payment on their debt. All right. Now, there's a couple of things causing inflation right now. Right? What you've got obviously supply chain issues, but there is a ton of cash out there. If you think about what happened last year when COVID hit and you know, we 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 had all sorts of things that the government was throwing at us. One of them was the PPP loans. 
And just about every business out there thought the worst was going to happen. And so they took these PPP loans and it turns out that it was really companies that had to do with travel, leisure, hospitality, you know, restaurants and things like that were the ones that needed them. And the rest of this is, you know, a lot of that money just got pumped into the economy. A lot of businesses were super flush with cash. And all right, well, let's, let's build, let's, let's grow, let's, let's invest this into capital and increase our ability to do business. A lot of cash out there. So there was stimulus at the individual level, but also with those PPP loans at the business level. So there is a ton of cash out there. And then you've got this... And if, if there's a lot of cash and it's chasing goods that cannot be produced fast enough, that's going to cause prices to go up. And then you've got the increase in wages at the, at the lower to middle end, where we've had wages increase at the upper end, but not at the lower end. And so now there's a big reset that increase in wages causes some inflation. Now, luckily, you've got net operating margins at a high for the S&P 500. So that can be handled. Over the next year or two, you know, this inflation issue will likely smooth out. Um, so while bonds are likely to pay more two years from now than they do now... It's going to still make retirement more expensive. So that's where I'm going with all this. Inflation will likely smooth out and rates will probably increase for a bit and then slow down. But bonds still likely aren't going to pay more two years from now than they did in 2007 when you could get, you know, four to six percent on your bond portfolio. And now you're looking at around two percent. The big change in the last couple of weeks has been the talk of transitory inflation versus, hey, let's just get rid of that word, according to Jay Powell. And let's talk about the actual inflationary issues out there. A couple of things that are causing inflation, like I mentioned, a ton of cash out there, a ton of cash. You can see it every time the stock market pulls back, people are looking for places to put it. You can see from vehicle sales, things like that. You know, people, business owners got PPP loans that they didn't end up needing to keep them out of bankruptcy. Businesses, you know, besides hotel, restaurants, anything, you know, travel leisure related, businesses did really, really well. So they had extra cash. So they start buying goods and equipment and try to grow their business. And then you've got an increase in wages. <clears throat> So yeah, it's 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 not just transitory. It's going to be with us for a little while here. Year or two, it'll likely smooth out though. Get back to normal inflationary issues. So we hope. We don't want to run away inflation decade. We don't want it to be like the late 70s, early 80s when inflation was out of control. Um, so I think interest rates will be higher in a year or two, for sure. I mean... I think we'll get to 1.75 on the 10-year treasury sooner than later. It would not surprise me at all. But the 10-year treasury was closer to over... It was over, not closer, but over 4% in terms of you could go to the US government, you could buy a 10-year bond, know you're going to get your money back in 10 years. In the meantime, get over 4% income. Now, lately, it's been bouncing, bouncing back and forth between one65 and down to kind of the 1.35% range. 
See what I mean? So you're getting a lot less income from the bond. So if you go into retirement and you have a balanced portfolio, and we got in the business 28 years ago, it was 40, 60. Now it's 60, 40 usually, or a little bit more even in stocks, like 65, 35. Well, that 35 to 40% that you have in bonds is paying way less. So that's why Morningstar, you know, we've been talking about this 4% rule is no longer the 4% rule anymore. Morningstar, back on November 15th, Suzanne Woolley put out an article. And the 4% rule is now the 3.3% rule. So again, let's go back to this rule. The 4% rule, according to Morningstar, came from a 1994 study that looked at every rolling 30-year period since 1926. It found that retirees with portfolios made up of 50% stocks and 50% bonds could tap an annual amount equal to 4% of their original pot of money adjusted for inflation without risk of outliving their money. Well, that's a bold statement, without risk of outliving their money. So what that meant is that if you retired in 1994 with 50% stocks, 50% bonds, you had a million-dollar portfolio, you could take out $40,000 the first year, and then every year increase it slightly with inflation to keep up with the standard of living without fear of outliving your money. And now you got not everybody, but now you have people that have enough wealth to retire. They're typically eating healthier, exercising more, and living longer. And that amount of money that you have in either you know the 50% in bonds or bonds and cash is paying way less. So in 1994, you could have started drawing... 40 grand a year off your billion dollar portfolio. Now you're talking about $33,000 a year. And so retirement has become more expensive because interest rates are so low. Now I fully believe that <clears throat> when we look at stocks and we and we consider stock you know returns over 15 to 20 year periods that we still if you're looking out over 20 year periods you still average 10 11% stocks. Now, we'll probably go through in the next 20 years a little bit higher inflation than we led the last 20 years because inflation was so low. So that mutes returns a little bit. And then you've got a lower income from the bond side. So people retiring in the next few decades should only count on withdrawing 3.3% of their savings a year, down from the well-established number of 4%. So that's kind of the new... (laughs) That's kind of the new look at retirement. Now, at the same time, people are saying, oh, okay, I want to retire at 65, but now I know that I should probably wait till 70 to take Social Security. And that's usually a good idea if you're going to live into your mid-80s or beyond, that you wait till 70 to take Social Security. Let that Social Security amount grow and max out from your full retirement age to age 70. That's like an 8% rate of return on your money if you can wait. So you have this gap between 65 and 70 that you might be withdrawing more. And then Social Security kicks in and then you would draw less. So there's going there's a little bit of a play that you have to do. It's not an even amount, right? You might be drawing 5% from 65 to 70 and then you might need to drop it down to like 2% for a decade, right? Well, Social Security kicks in. And then you're spending... It's not just a straight line. It's a smiley face in retirement, right? You retire, what do you do? You do all the things that you didn't have time to do. Travel, fun, honey-do list, remodel, get that second home. Um, you know, whatever it is. And then so you spend more and then you kind of settle into retirement in your mid-70s. 
and then you get into the mid eighties and you're in your, uh, so your, your expenses actually kind of drop and then you get into your mid eighties and then your health costs start to really rapidly increase and you start spending more based on your health issues. So it's interesting because there's so many more rules when it comes to retirement, how social security is taxed. Medicare Part B, and if your income is higher, you pay IRMA, which is a higher amount than your neighbor for the same Part B and Part D coverage. Um, spending is that smiley face rather than kind of a, hey, I'm going to spend X number of dollars this year and I'm going to increase it with inflation every year. The rules have gotten a little bit tougher um, and retirement is a little bit more expensive now, right? We have to prepare for that. And so, Part of preparing for that is to think a you know, little longer about your career and say, okay, I need to enjoy life a little bit more now. So take that vacation. Why are you letting that vacation pile up? Why are you not taking that sabbatical? Why are you not enjoying some of your life now so that you can say, okay, I, I might work a little longer. I might like to work until I'm 70 versus retire at 65 do a bunch of stuff for the first couple of years and then be bored and not healthy. So people are phasing their retirements a little bit more. Um, and you need to really be strategic now about the accounts and how you draw from them. For example, if you're retiring, you've got some cash, you've got some Roth money, you've got some 401k and IRA money. One of the ways you can offset these low interest rates is to be much more strategic when it comes to taxes and how you draw money out. Learn about tax brackets. Learn how there is a capital gains bracket that's affected by the ordinary income bracket. And when you sell stocks outside of your retirement accounts, it's taxed as capital gains, but your retirement accounts are taxed as ordinary income. You have to learn about how to play those, those two different tax brackets together so that you can keep taxes lower for longer throughout this entire retirement. Because if bonds are going to stay low for a long period of time and retirement's going to be more expensive, you got to save money on fees, you got to save money on taxes, other costs and things like that. Say hello to a pass that gives you endless travel for $2,500 per month with no nightly rates, taxes, or fees. You might call it the suitcases always packed pass or the wait, I get to choose from 100,000 trips pass, the will it be the beach, city, mountains, or all three pass. Or you could just call it what we call it, the Inspirado Pass. Endless travel for $2,500 per month with no nightly rates, taxes, or fees. Learn more at inspiradopass.com. A couple more issues. Um, and you want to check out the Morningstar.com article on hey, the 3.3% is the new 4% rule. And the, the key to retirement income planning is to be a little bit flexible. You don't have to make giant adjustments, right? What I mean by that is, is when you do your financial planning, you use conservative rates of return to say, this is what I think uh, my portfolio... It, let, let's assume bonds stay really low in terms of income. And I'm going to run financial projections and assume a, a conservative rate of return, 6% or less. Now, if portfolio has done better than that, heck yeah. But let's be conservative on projections to figure out how long the portfolio is going to last. And then when you... Start taking your money out. You you might go through a rough market every five to seven years where you've got a large decline, right? Like twenty twenty, right in the beginning. Like now that was all recovered quickly, but a lot of retirees were sitting there saying, "Oh my gosh, the market's down thirty plus percent. 
So do I st- do I reduce the amount of money that I pull from my portfolio this year by 30% because it's a rough market year? Well, most people can't afford to do that. If you go into retirement and you're projecting a certain amount of income each year from your portfolio that you need to take to pay your expenses, most families can't afford to reduce their spending by 20 or 30%. So again, you don't need to do that. It, what you can do is reset your entire plan and say, okay, I'm going to... I'm going to adjust what I'm doing for the next 20 years by 1% or 2%. And that's the same over a longer period of time as a one-time 20% reduction in spending. You see what I'm saying? So it's, it's a much smaller cut longer term. And then if the market recovers and goes beyond what it was before the large correction, then you can reset your spending again. And again, focus on that tax reduction. If, you, if you're not looking at your overall retirement portfolio and taking a more tax strategic approach in terms of which accounts you draw from when to keep your tax bracket lower for longer, then you're doing it wrong. Now, some people are retiring with just 100% of their money for retirement in a 401k, and there's not a lot of options, right? Anything you take out of that 401k is 100% taxable income. But if you have tax diversification, you've got some 401k pre-tax, some Roth IRA tax-free, some cash that you've already paid taxes on, and then a brokerage account that when you sell, you pay capital gains. That's where you can do a lot of blended income and keep your taxes really, really super low. Other ways that you can keep your retirement costs low, and this is something that's changed over the last couple of years, is if you're sitting there and you're a very conservative investor. I'm not talking about those that have a ton of money because there's a lot of... Well, not a lot, but there's a certain amount of people out there that, that they have so much invested between their stocks and their real estate that between their net income on their real estate and the dividends on the stocks, they don't even have to you know, sell. They don't have to eat into their principal to live. They have enough passive income. And so they don't care what their stock portfolio does in terms of fluctuation. They know over a 20 plus year period, it's going to average 10, 11%. So they don't care what the prices are doing in the near term because they know those stocks are still going to pay dividends regardless of what the stock market's doing. And that, that's a great place to be for sure. But most people are not that aggressive and they, most people can't handle that much volatility in retirement. And most people haven't saved so much money that they can afford to live off just the passive income. They have to have that balanced portfolio. They have to have a certain amount in bonds. And then you have the really conservative investors that can't handle the fluctuation. So instead of being 60% stocks, 40% bonds, they're more like 40% stocks, 60% bonds. Well, the Barclays Aggregate Bond Index is down 3% for the year. So they're hurting. And there's likely a bit more pain ahead as interest rates drift upward. The Fed starts exiting the bond market in terms of buying and buying and buying. And eventually, interest rates on the short-term side for the Fed increase. That still can put some pressure down on bond prices. So even though you have that income, you can still have that net return because of the share price drop that puts you into that negative you know world of 3 to 5% in some cases so those that are super conservative that have too much money sitting in bonds it's not going to be a great place to be over the next couple of years those are the people that could say you know what maybe i take some of that bond money or my extra cash sitting there that i'm too afraid to put into the stock market let's pay off that mortgage if you pay off that mortgage Likely, most retirees aren't even itemizing their 
taxes, their deductions anymore. They're taking the standard deductions. They're not getting a huge benefit from that mortgage. And interest rates are so low on 15 and 30-year mortgages. In the past, you could say, you know what? I'm going to keep that 30-year mortgage. And I'm going to take that cash and invest in tax-free municipal bonds. And my income is going to be higher than what the mortgage cost is. And you come out ahead. But that's not necessarily the case anymore. And so you can cut your cash flow, your cash outflow by paying off that mortgage for those that are unwilling to put that money in stocks. Now, if you were to put the money in stocks and have a 15 to 20 year time horizon, you're going to come out ahead every single time. But if you don't have that risk tolerance, it might make you feel really, really good to take the bonds or the extra cash and pay off that debt. Now, if you have to pull that out of an IRA or 401k, pay taxes on it and pay off the mortgage, that's stupid. That's never going to work. That's not a good idea. I'm talking about those that have excess cash outside of their 401ks and IRAs. It might be better for those people to have less in bonds and you know, pay down the mortgage. Now, if you're going to do that, you better have sufficient insurance and potentially earthquake insurance and realize that your house is going to go up and down in value no matter how much you owe on it. So you're, you're definitely going to uh, sock money into the walls of that house. And it's not, again, it's not going to be... Buying stocks would have been a lot better over a 20-year period, but that might not be a risk tolerance. It's something to consider. That's something if you were to listen to me on the show four or five years ago that I would have said, don't pay off your house. It's a little different now. Now I want to go to this email from, from Lisa. Lisa's got a great... There's a lot of questions here. I'm going to try to get to them all, Lisa. But it's a good stable value 401k discussion here. And what I mean by stable value... You guys have heard me talk about stable value funds inside 401ks. If you look at a stable value fund inside of a 401k, the, the income is almost as much as most core bond funds. What I mean by core bond funds is you're buying general... U.S. bonds, some some government debt, some basic corporate debt. It's it's like the Barclays Aggregate Bond Index. If you look at the ETF AGG, that's a core bond index. And when you have a bond portfolio, you have some in the in a core bond situation, and then some in strategic fixed income, which is more of like a go anywhere type of a bond fund. And right now, I like stable value a bit more than core bonds. Because stable value, you get almost the same income amount as a core bond fund of about 1.8% or so. A stable value fund is going to give you around 1.6, most of the ones that I'm seeing right now. But as interest rates increase, you're not going to see the stable value fund fall in value. Whereas you will, as interest rates increase, you're going to see other core bond funds fall in value. You have a duration number that you could look at and kind of estimate if the 10-year treasury goes from 1.35 to 2.35, you might see that bond fund fall by 5 or 6% in value. So not massive drops, but still potential decrease in value. So that's stable value is a good core bond alternative in a 401k. And it's also a good safe money alternative. What I mean by that is if you're getting close to retirement, you hear me talk about always make sure that you, if you're getting close to retirement, you're within five years from retirement, you should have done some very detailed cash flow planning with some conservative rates of return, tax analysis, everything else, figure out how much you're going to draw from your portfolio over and above your social security and consistent income, even rental properties, things like that. You need three years worth of your portfolio draws. 
and safe money. So not only can stable value 401k a uh, stable value fund be a core bond alternative, but it can also be a place where you keep your safe money. You're getting closer and closer to retirement. You realize that, okay, I'm going to retire in you know four or five years. Then I can have a certain amount of three years where the portfolio draws in a stable value fund. And then the rest of my portfolio, you don't really need to go over about 65% growth or SOX and 35% defensive. You're... you're Probably taking a bit too much risk for most retirees at that level. So Lisa writes in. Um, this is based on the stable value, and we'll try to get to the the, the whole email. But thanks for your podcast. I learned so much. Uh, not not sure I'll start earthing, but I'm I am health focused and appreciate the dialogue in areas of both finance and health. So thanks, appreciate that. My husband and I are both fifty and hope to leave corporate America at fifty five and use the rule of fifty five to lower our pre tax balances. I started to move some balances to my stable value fund for one year safe money and will continue to do more over the next five years. However, as I try to dial in my overall allocation, should I keep the safe money out of the allocation percent or keep that in the bond allocation? That's, so that's a good question. So what's what? There's a couple things that Lisa's doing is increasing her safe money over the next five years. So she's got that three years worth of portfolio draws in cash. And in this case, she's using stable value as a cash alternative inside the 401k because the stable value funds are paying, you know, like I said, 1.4 to 1.6%. So way more than cash and uh, almost the same as core bonds without the interest rate risk. So pretty good uh, move on Lisa's part. Now, should I keep the safe money out of the cal- allocation or keep that in bonds? So for the three years worth of safe money, keep that out of your overall allocation. But then you can still use some more of safe, uh, a bond alternative in the stable value. Going over an email from Lisa. So Lisa, you were asking essentially uh, if you're keeping and starting to build your safe money, your three years worth of portfolio draws and safe money, and you're using your 401k stable value fund, should you separate that from your overall portfolio? It, it, it doesn't really matter, right? You can think of it, you can do the math and figure out, okay, here's your, your safe money. And then you have a certain asset allocation with the rest of your assets. Let's say that's 60-40. Just do the math and, and figure out what the percentage is supposed to be in the stable value fund. And then you can also use a stable value fund as alternative to core bonds, right? When you're building a bond portfolio, you have a certain amount in core bonds, which are kind of bonds like the Barclays Aggregate Index. And then you have strategic income, which is going to you know, deal in different types of bonds, whether it's Shinny Mays or TIPS or uh, structured debt or emerging market debt or other types of bond funds that are out there. So it, it doesn't matter to me. Just do the math and whatever way it is to, to figure out what that right percentage for you is. I do want to address this because she said something that most people don't know about. My husband and I are both 50 and hope to leave corporate America at 55 and use the rule of 55 to lower our pre-tax balances. So what Lisa's talking about is that if you have a 401k, everybody thinks of their 401ks and IRAs as, oh, I can't touch it until I'm 59 and a half without a 10% penalty. Well, if you're in a 401k and you retire and separate from service at age 55, after age 55, you can actually draw on your 401ks without getting hit with that 10% penalty. 
So usually I tell people when they retire, roll your 401k to an IRA. You can get the same or better funds. You can have, you you can consolidate things into one brokerage account like Schwab or Fidelity, Team, Meritrade. But but, uh, in this case, they're going to want to leave that 401k while they're drawing on it between 55 and 59 and a half and then roll it to an IRA. So that's what she's talking about there. There's that 55 situation where you can actually draw on a 401k. Now, there's ways to do it on an IRA too, 72T calculations, but it's a, a big, it's a pain in the butt. It's, it's easier to do the 401k strategy at 55. Um, there's a couple of other questions have. Um, she's actually got a pension plan, defined benefit pension plan that ends up being a lump sum at retirement. Um, you know, do I leave that allocation or do I invest that in my own? If you have a defined benefit pension plan, if you're going to take it as an income over your entire lifetime, that actually amount, that income will reduce the amount of safe money that you have to have because it's guaranteed income. So your safe money calculation is your expenses minus your guaranteed income sources or dependable income sources like Social Security and pension. So if you're going to take it as a lifetime income, it's going to just reduce the amount of safe money that you have. If you're going to take it as a lump sum and there's truly no investment risk in the meantime, where the company's taking all the investment risk, then you can use that as your bond allocation. The other questions are, do, do I assume that options RSUs and, and corporate plans as part of stock allocation? Absolutely. If you have RSUs, for example, your signature stock units, as those vests, they become 100% taxable. And they usually sell some of those shares to, to withhold the taxes. And then it's up to you to sell the rest. And as you get closer and closer to retirement, like in this situation, having more than 5% in a company stock gets silly. So as those vests, there's no reason to hold those. As those vests, sell the remaining shares and invest the, the, that net amount into a diversified stock portfolio. That should be what every retiree is focusing on as they get closer and closer to retirement. All right, real quick. Got a couple minutes left. I want to get to another email. Kathy says, I'm 64, retired and planning on taking Social Security at 70. I have a large 401k and extra cash. So I was planning on maxing out either the 22 or 24% tax bracket with a Roth conversion. I believe you're... You mentioned in the past that your maximum bracket for conversion is typically 22%. Why is that? Okay, so what we're dealing with is federal brackets here. Now, if you're in California and Oregon, you pay state taxes on top of that. But the way that the federal income tax brackets work is there's a 10, a 12, a 22, a 24, and a 32% bracket. And to me, when you can do it and you have extra cash on the sidelines and you can do an IRA to Roth conversion, you've done very careful retirement planning, you know you have more money than you need for retirement, and your kids are at a higher bracket, then converting at the 22% bracket is kind of a no-brainer. Once you get into the 24% bracket, when you're doing the conversions, as you get closer to 65, you have to consider what's called IRMA, where if your income goes higher, your Medicare premiums can start to increase. Okay, Your Medicare premiums can go up. Most people, when they turn 65, they they get Medicare Part A for free. And most people pay $148.50 a month for Medicare Part B premiums. But if you are, in this case, Kathy's an individual based on her email. So she's filing a single return. And once your income... Uh, starts to go above 
$88,000, your Medicare Part B premiums can start to increase. So, Kathy, to answer your question, the 22 and 24% bracket, they're, they're both, you know, that's 2% differential in, in taxes. So, if your heirs are a much higher bracket than that, then you should be considering it. But once you get into that 24% bracket, that's that bracket where you start to pay IRMA, where what happens is they're going to look back two years at your tax return. And if your income is high, that means your Medicare Part B premiums can go up. So people have, that's where some people get caught on their IRA to Roth conversion strategies is paying, going a little bit too much. So where they start to pay that IRMA, uh, which is basically your Medicare Part B premiums higher than your neighbors for the same crappy coverage, right? So you just have to be careful in that situation. And, you start to hit that over 22%. So I don't, I don't care. I mean, if I've had clients that we've done IRA to Roth conversions at a much higher federal bracket, and it's because of estate planning and their kids being at a higher bracket, we're trying to reduce you know, what's going to be taxed at the estate tax level when they die, but they're already paying IRMA. So if you're going to do IRA to Roth conversions, you got to learn about IRMA. Thanks for listening to the show. If you want to find me, if you need help with your financial planning, retirement planning, state planning, tax issues, we do it all, EP Wealth, just go to chadburton.com. Thanks for listening. Please tell a friend about the show. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never before seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.